This morning we are continuing in our series of sermons on Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, picking up where we left off at the end of chapter 2, taking a little time this morning to briefly consider the first three verses of chapter 3. Now our uh, working assumption thus far has been that in this letter Paul is doing three main things. Firstly, he is describing and defending his practices uh, and decisions as an apostle. Secondly, he's describing and defending his perspectives as an apostle. And thirdly, describing and defending his position, his role as an apostle. As I've said previously, those headings admittedly do not cover everything, but they are comprehensive enough to give us a general framework for the letter as a whole. So far, our study has been taken up with that first stated purpose, Paul's description and defense of some of his decisions and his practices as an apostle. From the very beginning of this letter, after making some preliminary comments, Paul started out by defending a decision that he had made to not follow through with a previously planned and announced visit. Along with that, Paul also defends the decision he made to send them a very strongly worded letter in place of that visit. We then saw Paul issue some specific instructions to the Corinthians regarding their treatment of a certain person. And the reason for these particular instructions was because the strongly worded letter just mentioned had had its desired effect. The Corinthians had finally responded to Paul on a specific disciplinary matter. And because they had responded, and because the person in question had also responded appropriately, Paul wanted them to act accordingly. Well, following that, we had a very brief look at another decision that Paul had made and which was related to all of these things, the decision to walk away from a wide-open ministry opportunity in Troas. And it is at that point in the letter that Paul um, begins to transition into a new section or a new area of emphasis within the letter, which is where we currently are. And in this section, Paul, for the most part, is going to focus his efforts on describing and defending not only his practices, but some of the perspectives that drive him as an apostle to do the things he does and to say the things he says. Now, one of those perspectives was highlighted in our last look at this letter in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. In that study, we saw Paul invoke a comparison of his ministry of speaking Christ to a familiar phenomenon in that day. And that was these triumphal processions that often took place when victorious Roman soldiers returned from battle. And with that, what Paul had specifically in view was the different ways in which those processions were perceived by those who were present. For some of the people present at those, it was a cause for celebration. For others, the very same event was a foreshadowing of imminent suffering and even death in some cases. In a similar fashion, said Paul, the preaching of the gospel has the same sort of twofold effect. For some people, it is a message of life, while for others, for those who reject it, it is a sign of judgment and death. The verses before us this morning, we'll see Paul complete the transition that he's making and uh, addressing at first a practice that, oddly enough, he was being criticized for not engaging in. 
And then we'll look at the perspective that lay behind that particular decision of Paul's. That's where we're heading. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we all know the experience of sitting around a table or in a living room with family or friends. And somebody begins to tell a story or make a statement that we really want to hear. And so we lean forward or turn our heads slightly so we can take it all in. Father, help us to do that now. Help us all to lean forward to listen to what you are saying to us in and through your priceless, completely reliable word. And whatever it is that might distract us, we ask that you suppress all of that and enable us to put it aside, at least for a moment, so that we can give you our undivided attention. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read the passage, let me just ask, is anybody else warm in here? Yeah? If somebody could, this, this unit over here on the far wall in the corner, if it, somebody could move that. Thank you, John. I see that hand. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. Let me read this for you. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you know that you are, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, one of the first questions that comes to mind as we read these rather curious words is, what's going on here? What is Paul talking about? What's the background behind these comments? Why is there this talk all of a sudden about commendations and letters of recommendation? Where does that come from? Well, the first place to go in thinking about all that is to recall the situation, or at least part of the situation, that Paul was facing in Corinth. As you may remember, Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth when he first landed there and founded the church. And while he was there, God worked in encouraging and obvious ways. And after the church was established enough, Paul moved on to continue church planting elsewhere. Well, at some point after that, how long we don't know, but after that, Paul moved, uh, after Paul moved out, some other people came in amongst the Corinthian fellowship. They were outsiders, and again, while we cannot say for certain who they were, we have enough clues in Paul's letters to form some tentative conclusions about them. One writer, C.K. Barrett, summed it up by describing these false teachers this way. He says, uh, he describes them as emissaries that had embarked on a misguided program of capturing Paul's churches for their own brand of Jewish Christianity. And one possible confirmation of this is, uh, conclusion is simply the subject matter of the very next set of verses. And we'll look at that next week. It's this limited comparison and contrast between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant era inaugurated by Christ's first coming. And so the working assumption, working on that assumption, I should say, that Barrett has pro properly identified these people 
the other thing to take note of is not only who they likely were, but also how they seem to have been operating. In short, judging from what Paul says here and elsewhere, it seems that in coming to Corinth, these traveling teachers had gained the confidence of the Corinthian believers by showing them some sort of credentials, uh, letters of recommendation that evidently the Corinthians, or at least some of them, had found very persuasive. Even further, not only had they presented letters of recommendation to the Corinthians, but they were apparently seeking letters of commendation from the Corinthians, presumably so that whenever they were finished there, they could move on and use them to gain access to some of Paul's other church plants in the near future. And all of this, reading between the lines, appears to have created what one commentator describes as an accreditation problem for the Apostle Paul. An accreditation problem. The Corinthians were so impressed with the commendations that these false teachers had shown them that they were now apparently wondering why Paul had never presented them with any letters of recommendation of his own when he first arrived. Here's how one writer explains the situation. Paul's difficulty was that he lacked external accreditation. He was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. The Corinthians had only Paul's word that he was in good standing with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. His only course was to reiterate that the risen Lord had called him to be an apostle and to point to his sacrificial lifestyle as legitimizing that call. Yet this easily made it appear that he was commending himself. And the dilemma was that he must either say nothing in his defense and allow the work in Corinth to be destroyed by default, or run the risk of the accusation that he was blowing his own trumpet. And so it was that Paul was basically in a no-win kind of situation with the Corinthians. He had no letters of external commendation to show them, which was being counted as a mark against him apparently. But if he made an attempt to defend himself or justify his authority, as he'd already done on several occasions, he was apparently being accused of self-promotion or pride or boasting or vanity. It's not hard to identify with what that must have felt like for Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think of different times in my life when I have been accused of things by someone. And then I responded to those accusations in self-defense only to then find myself accused of being defensive. Whether I responded or chose not to respond, neither option had a good outcome. Perhaps you've been in that same kind of situation once or twice yourself, and if so, then you'll understand what it was like for Paul. As one writer, a guy named Gouge, put it, self-defense is almost impossible without self-commendation. Paul's opponents made the former necessary, but then blamed him for the latter. So how does Paul respond to all this, more importantly? Well, for starters, it's worth noting that Paul didn't rush out and try to acquire for himself some letters of commendation that might appease the demanding Corinthians. And it should be said here that the reason Paul didn't do this wasn't because he thought letters of commendation were a bad thing, or even that using them was necessarily a bad practice. Paul himself, on several occasions, engaged in this very same practice. As one writer sums it up, 
In writing 1 Corinthians, Paul took the opportunity of speaking strongly on Timothy's behalf in chapter 16. This present letter of 2 Corinthians is itself, in part, a commendation of Titus and his companions who are going to carry this letter to Corinth. In Romans 16, Paul commends Phoebe to the Christians in the imperial capital. In Colossians 4, he reminds the Colossians that they had received injunctions to welcome Barnabas if he came to them. So Paul's refusal to produce a letter of commendation for himself wasn't because he didn't think they were useful. Clearly he did. The reason Paul didn't produce a written letter of recommendation was because he already had a letter of recommendation. What was that letter? It was the Corinthians themselves. The individual believers that had responded to his ministry during the 18 months that he spent laboring amongst them. And equally, the church as a whole. As Paul puts it, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul's letter of recommendation wasn't something you could fold up and put in your pocket. It was people. All kinds of people that had been changed by the gospel. And we're not just talking about minor changes. We're talking about people who are living lives radically opposed to what God calls his people to be. Listen to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when Paul talks about the Corinthians being his letters of recommendation, he's talking about a number of people who'd undergone radical transformations. People who were running away from God as fast as they could, who are now going in a new direction. To be sure, that would not have been the story for each and every Corinthian, and there would have been all kinds of other ways, much less dramatic, in which people's lives had been transformed as a consequence of Paul's ministry. But whether in big and obvious ways, or in subtle, uh, less apparent ways, the net effect of Paul's ministry was that people were different. Lives were being changed. Perspectives were changed. New decisions were being made. However, even as you take note of that, please take note of the fact that while Paul can claim the Corinthian believers as his living letters of recommendation, he does not do so under any illusions about himself or about the real source of power that has made his ministry so effective. Paul makes it clear that the Corinthians are a letter from Christ, not a letter from Paul. A letter from Christ. Christ is the author And even further, Paul says that it is the Holy Spirit that has inscribed the truth on their hearts, not him. So Paul's not under any illusions here. He's not taking any credit for what God has done. Paul says that this 
letter of Christ, that is the Corinthians, was merely delivered by him and his colleagues. Right? I mean, the most that Paul will say here is that he's the delivery boy. He's a tool, an instrument that was used by God in some small way in the whole process. Surely Paul is honored. He is honored to be that way, to take that part. He's thankful to be a part of the process, but at the same time, he makes it clear where the real credit and the real glory lies with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This past week, sadly, we witnessed the aftermath of these terrible tornadoes that came through the southern U.S., killing more than, I think, at the last I heard, the count was 350 people. The most tragic event of that kind, apparently, since 1932. And if you saw any of the photographs or have seen these things before, particularly the aerial photographs, you can see this clearly discernible path where a particular tornado came through, leaving in its wake this ominous and sobering trail of destruction and evidence. We need to pray for those people who've been affected and for the relief and recovery efforts that are now taking place there. But as I thought about that storm, you know, Storms don't always leave a trail of destruction. Sometimes thunderstorms come through, bringing with them much-needed rain to regions that desperately need it. And in their wake, in the wake of that kind of storm, there's life, there's growth, crops that strengthen, flowers that bloom, even the air sometimes seems cleaner after a storm comes through. So you know what kind of storm you've had, not by any predictions attached to it, not by whatever pronouncements might have preceded its coming, but by what it leaves in its wake. The same thing can be said about people in ministries. Everything you need to know about a person in their ministry is seen in what they leave behind, what's in their wake, what's happening in the lives of people with whom their lives have intersected. That's the resume you most need to see. That is the letter of recommendation. That means more than any piece of paper. And let me give you two areas where you can apply this truth. Firstly, as a church, and then secondly, as individuals. As a church, there's at least one specific way you can apply the truth seen in this passage. And that is the next time that you have to look for a new pastor for your church. When that day comes and when you put together your pulpit committee, then you make sure that whoever's on that committee, they understand the things we've been looking at this morning. To be sure, you need to do all the things that pulpit committees typically do. You make sure that your committee looks at resumes. That's fine. There's a place for resumes. Look for letters of recommendation on paper. Those can be helpful sometimes, if people are honest. And you make sure your committee listens to sermons. That's very important too. And just as a side note, can I just say, when you listen to sermons, don't let the guy you're interviewing pick them for you. 
Right? Even a broken clock gets it right twice a day. Most guys can come up with a killer sermon to show you. Don't ask for that. Ask for a series of sermons, four or five in a row, preached from a book of the Bible. That'll give you a better idea of what to expect on a week-by-week basis. But along with looking at resumes and along with listening to sermons, you make sure that your committee looks at people. Look at the people that have sat under his ministry for some length of time. Talk to them. Find out what difference it has made. Find out if and how God has used him in their lives for growth in grace. In other words, look for the living letters of recommendation that confirm God's having set him apart as a servant of the gospel. If you can find those, you're on the right track. If those letters are few and far between or hard to read or discouraging to read, you keep looking. And in the meantime, during those periods when you aren't looking for a pastor, let those things put you on your knees to pray for the pastors you already have. Pray that God would use them to inscribe on your hearts by the authorship of Christ and the work of the Spirit the indelible truths of his glory and grace. Pray that God would use them to transform you. And then in addition to thinking about how you might apply this as a church, I want you to think about what all this means for you personally from two different angles. Firstly, I want you to think about these things with regard to the track record of your own life as it has impacted on other people. Self-reflection, said this in Sunday school this morning, self-evaluation is usually a good thing. Taking time to think about your life, to look back and see where you've come from and what you've left in your own wake is a helpful thing to do for lots of reasons. From a biblical perspective, it's good stewardship. It's good and right to think about your life as the gift from God that it is. And to think about how you've invested and used what God has entrusted to you. Whether it be one or two or five talents, to use the language of Matthew 25. Sadly, and I think all too often, we typically don't take enough time to do that kind of self-evaluation until we are forced to do so. An accident leaves us laid up in a hospital with a lot of time on our hands. A sudden illness causes us to slow down and reevaluate. The death of a friend or family member makes us reflect on our own mortality and what our own lives have meant. What people might say at our funeral. Then again, it's not always hardship that causes us to be reflective. Sometimes it's just a change of pace. A time out. Slowing down. Catching a break that gives you time to sit down, put your feet up, and just think and remember and pray. But however it happens, whether it's forced upon you, whether you make a conscious decision to do it, the next time you take a moment to look back and reflect on the stewardship of your life, I want you to look for something. I want you to look for people 
Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing worth looking for. I'm not saying it's the only thing of value. It isn't. But as a point of application for what we've been looking at this morning, I want you to focus on people. Because regardless of what else you've done, unless you have lived your life in a desert or in some remote cabin in the wilderness, your life has intersected with lots of people. Family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, people that God has brought into your life and into whose lives he has brought you. And as you think about the people that have walked some part of this path with you, ask yourself this. How has God used me in the lives of the people that he has made a part of my life, my world, my journey? More specifically, ask yourself this. Who are the people that I might list as my own letter of recommendation? Who are the people that God has used me to minister to, to serve, to encourage, to challenge, to comfort, to lovingly rebuke and promote a change? If Christianity was a crime, who are the people who would be used as proof of my guilt? And whatever the answer might be to those questions, let that reflection lead you to your knees to pray for the people that God has been so kind as to use you in ministering to them. To pray for the people that God has been so kind as to to give you opportunities uh, in the past and to pray for more opportunities in the future, even today. To pray that God would give you the vision to see the opportunities that are already there staring you in the face. And then the courage to take up the opportunity once you've seen it. Perhaps you need to ask for forgiveness for opportunities that you have in your self-centeredness and self-absorption completely squandered. And then to pray with thanksgiving that because of the gospel, there is mercy for squanderers like you and me. And because of God's kindness, you are still breathing. And that means there are still opportunities that might be taken up. The other angle from which I want you to consider this as an individual is not only in terms of how your life has impacted others, but in terms of how your own life has been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Because it's not only true that you are an ambassador and messenger of Christ, Christ's gospel, you are also a message of the gospel. It's not just the hearts of others that have been inscribed by the Holy Spirit. Your own heart has been and is being inscribed by Him as well. And as you think about that, think about what that message is and has been. What is the story that has been told, and that is being told in and through your life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus? As God has used others in your own life as instruments of the Holy Spirit's work, what has happened? How does that letter that is you read? What's the message that's getting across? And is the message I think I'm sending the one I'm actually sending? It's a lot to think about, I know. And it's a lot to pray about. 
but it's worth the effort. I know you've heard it before. I know it's something of a cliche, but I still think it's a good one. There's a story being written, a chapter a day, the things that I do, the things that I say. My life is an open book that anybody can read. So, what is the gospel according to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your words to us, and we thank you for these. And Father, I pray that you would inscribe these truths on our hearts in an indelible way. And that the proof of that would be increasingly obvious, and that the glory for that would completely go to you. We pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll receive that at this time.